Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. For this episode of The Stott Legacy, we're going to do something a little bit different. Tuesday the 27th of April is the centenary of Uncle John's birth in central London and so we thought it would be good to revisit a conversation I had with somebody without whom John simply could never have achieved what he did and that is not an exaggeration. Francis Whitehead was John Stott's secretary for over 50 years and I got to know her over the 12 years I was on staff and, and part of All Souls. It was as I was chatting with her one staff lunch at All Souls that I came to realise what an extraordinary life hers had been. And so I wanted to record that so that she could tell her own story. And I'm so glad I did because that conversation that was put out in a small podcast on my blog was the catalyst for Julia Cameron then writing a a biography that's now been published and is now in fact in its second edition but we'll come back to that a bit later. Well Frances died two years ago back in 2019 uh, aged herself of 94 and that was eight years after John's death at 90. So when I recorded this interview back in 2013 I was able to meet her face-to-face, of course, then, in her home in Bourne End, just uh, west of London. And in fact, it was rather a significant day for Francis. It's the 57th anniversary to the day when I started work at All Souls on April 9th, 1956. It was my first day sitting in the drawing room at 12 Weymouth Street as the All Souls Church Secretary. Extraordinary, to this very day. Yes, to this very day. And what's more, you read in your Bible this morning Yes. uh, something rather extraordinary (laughs) as well. Exodus, Um, this is a day you are to commemorate. I said to the Lord when I, before I read my Bible this morning, please speak to me, and I opened the Bible, and this is is the reading for today in my Mm -hmm. script union notes. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come, to celebrate, etc., well, isn't that so, amazing? That's well, exactly what we're doing. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, wonderful. I must tell Mark that when he comes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's perfectly perfect. What a what a well, way in. But I said, I said, Lord, is it really you're talking to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, well, there we are. That's super. <laughs> well, what I thought we could do is we'll start by thinking about life before All Souls and then life after All Souls. I mean, that... All right. <laughs> yes. So... Um, if I'd said to you, perhaps, say, I don't know, in 1945, you would end up working with someone who had a profound impact on the worldwide church, and you'd work with him for 50-plus years, what would you have thought? It can't be true. It seemed quite outside my sphere or of interest or anything. Frances did not come from a Christian home, and her childhood had been particularly lonely. She had an older sister, just a year older, but she had died of leukaemia at the age of just eight. Her mother left the family home soon after that, and Frances only really made close friends when she went to boarding school at the age of 11. But then her father died when she was 18. After living in Switzerland and South Africa with her mother for a time, she then returned to Britain, 
and got a job in the overseas department of the BBC in London. And we pick up the conversation at the time when there was an office move. But then my, the BBC moved us up into the Langham Hotel, mm -hmm. and my office became not uh, there. Uh, the Langham Hotel, which was unfurnished, it was just bare of anything except all the offices were bedrooms with basins in them, and all the corridors were stone flagged, and there were no carpets. Mm. It was very primitive, but we have a big, big office um, for the overseas service up in the Langham mm. for a while. And that's how. I passed all souls for the first time. So from your office, could you see all souls? I couldn't see it, no, but I, yeah, I, mean, I went in the I front mean, door, of course. Yes. But the day I moved, we were told we were at 200 Oxford Street offices, we were told we were going to move to the Langham, so the other secretary and myself in my office, I said to her, let's go up and have a look at our new office and see what it's like. And we walked up, and that's when I saw all souls for the first time, and I stood outside, and the doors were open, yeah. and the spotlights were on the picture of Christ, right. and from the street, you could see. And I said to the girl who was with me, I must go in, I must go in and have a look, just look at that picture. Yeah. And we went in, something drew me in. I was, so it was like a magnet into the building. It was irresistible, I had to go in and look. And something immediately struck, and I said, I must come at this church, it's so unusual. Mm. And I went back to the office, back in the Langham, and I think the first thing I saw happening was a notice outside saying there was a lunchtime concert. So I thought, that's wonderful, that's music. We, I went to the lunchtime concert, and it was a big letdown. There was only a handful of people there. There was some music, but nobody said anything. There were no notices, no welcome. How nice to see you, who are you? So it was just, a, it was basically it was, it, this, just using this as a venue. Just as a recital, mm. but nothing was said. Mm. So I thought, this is a dead loss. This church must be, it's pretty dead. Well, I don't suppose I use that language, but I thought, I was disappointed. Mm. And I didn't go back until... Some weeks later, I was walking around by St. Peter's in my lunch hour, and then the bells were ringing, because we were allowed to ring bells in those days. You went to, Now you, we can't, the church is not allowed to broadcast anything from the tower. Right. But St. Peter's, it was a love, I was going to law. I'd been given a free ticket to go to Lord's to watch the cricket. Right. And I was feeling so happy in my lunch hour, thinking, aren't I lucky, I've got this ticket, and here's the sky is blue and the sun is shining, and these bells are ringing, I must go in and see what's happening. And that's what took me into St Peter's that day, in my now, lunch Now, were they all soul services still meeting in St Peter's then? Or had they finished No, the I think the Sunday service, which was a Thursday lunchtime. Right. It was a Thursday lunchtime, but I knew nothing about it, but I, oh. I, was, I went in, and the church was full. Oh. Even to the, I couldn't find a seat, I had to find a seat somewhere in the side aisle. And there was this man, this young man, preaching. And, and he was preaching from the Bible. I'd never heard anything like it. It was so interesting. Do you remember what think, his text was, was? I think it was Old Testament. No. But I was fascinated that here was somebody talking sense about the Bible that I'd never read. Mm. Not, I didn't know a thing. Yeah. Although my tradition had brought up in the church, yeah. I knew nothing yeah. except the prayer book service, I suppose. And of course that was John and it, Stott. It was purely words. Yeah. So that was John Stott, the first That time was you John, young John Stott. Yeah. But he was, I was so fascinated because it was so interesting. Yeah. And that started me going to the lunchtime services on a Thursday. From that, I, started, I then found, of course, there were, it was linked with All Souls, mm. and I started going on Sundays to All Souls. Mm. But I went for a year, I should think, to Sunday services. Nobody ever spoke to you. Really? We all wore hats. And there's this. I behind them. <laughs> you, you had to wear a hat and look posh. Um, <laughs> and we sat in these awfully uncomfortable pews. 
um, George Cansdale, right. the zoo man, was in. Right. And I knew, I got to know him because in the BBC, he used to broadcast in the overseas service where I was working. And I used to go down to the studio right. and record George Cansdale's talks for West Africa, right. complete with his snakes, you know, that he Gosh. used to bring into the studio. Extraordinary. So I got to know him. And I think that's how somehow... So he was a link to the people of the church, right? Oh, yes, he was. And, of course, mm. he knew John. Mm. Um, and I think it must have been through George that I ever got a job with John, because I can't imagine why I was ever asked to go and, okay. and join the, the staff. So, so John had been rector for perhaps only a couple of years by this he point. He was a young rector. This was 52, I suppose. So he was 31. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I think I went for a year uh, on a Sunday before the penny really began to drop that I needed to do something about my faith and the fact that I was a hypocrite. And I knew that from a child, I prayed the Lord's Prayer every night. This is what got me. And I can remember, my father taught me to pray. He used to come and hear my prayers every night. And I can hear him now. I can see myself kneeling at my bed and my father beside me. And he's saying to me, stop. You're talking much too fast. You haven't thought about a single word you've said. And that's what he said to me, and it's always remained with me. I'm still the same, probably. <laughs> but you know, I, did, I was just talking without thinking about a single word. And I thought to myself, I said to God every night, Thy will be done. And I knew then I had never meant it. And I began to feel really uncomfortable that this was not how you treated God. And that's how I was feeling the night that I came on the, you know, on a. What to a watch night service, yes. 1951 to whatever, New Year's Eve, yeah. when John was preaching on I, if I be lifted up, would draw all men to me. Oh, yes, the picture. Yeah. He, he, was, he was referring to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Right. And I had just been up at Oxford with, I had a boyfriend who had taken me to the. Yes, uh, Yes, Yes, where it's got a picture of Moses lifting up the serpent on the wilderness on the staircase oh, right. and he'd show me this picture huh. and that was a week or two before and I'd been very struck by it and yet here it's, because I was with my boyfriend it, it struck it had stuck in my mind and then you know a few weeks later here was John preaching on this very picture oh. so I was listening mm. as I would not have listened before if I hadn't already seen the picture on the wall and it just made total sense and so then, the penny drops in your mind. In mine, because I'd seen the picture. Yeah. And he then opened it up. Did you talk to someone that night? I didn't talk to anybody, but the Lord spoke to me. I mean, mm. that night, because it was an evangelist, he obviously gave people an opportunity to respond to Christ after he'd been preaching. And he used to have a little prayer afterwards. People went, and if you could stay behind if you were interested in hearing, which I did. And he said a prayer which one could echo, which mm. I, and I did. I didn't tell anybody, but I echoed it. And then uh, that was New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and then I walked home. I walked home on air. It was, I was fortunate, I suppose, that night that I felt Christ was there with me, speaking to me. It was so real that I don't know whether you've had the experience of really experiencing the presence of the Lord with you. It's, it seems so tangible. But that was on January the 1st, but it took six months um, after that before I, I began to think, well, really, this is nonsense you ought to now, it's time you made yourself known and mm. learnt a bit more about what it means to be a Christian and how to go on. 
I'm sure we were often given opportunities to do something about it, but I thought, I can't, what do I do? We had, John had a congregation of registers. Everybody who was a member of the church was put on a register, as they, I think they are still. Mm. But there was a form you could fill in. And I thought, well, if I fill in the form, and if there's a, there are boxes you can tick, and if there's a box you can tick, which would mean that somebody's going to contact me rather than I having to go up to them and say, can I have a work, can I talk to you? Somebody else is going to have to take the initiative. So I'm a real card. <laughs> I found this form and I, I saw one of the boxes you could tick was opportunities for service in the church. So I thought if I tick that, somebody's bound to ask me what I want to do. And this will start the conversation. So I ticked it and waited. And believe it or not, a few days later, I had a phone call in my office at the BBC. I think I must have had to get my phone number or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a voice saying it was John Stott. Uh, Which you instantly recognised. Absolutely, yes. I was flabbergasted, I think. And I think he said to me, I think uh, you said you were interested in some opportunity for service in the church. I think you'd better come and talk to me. (laughs) Says John. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Summons. When can I come? He got out his black book, apparently, and he said, well, um, this, what, it would be a, I think it would have been a Wednesday night. He was running a Bible school, which he used to do three times a year. And it was, he gave me a, a time, six, six o'clock, before the Bible school was due to begin, which I realised later, of course, it was just quarter of an hour between the time he told me to come and the time he was supposed to be lecturing in the church. Just quarter of an hour. Hmm. So I went at six o'clock after work that day. He was already dressed up to go into the pulpit in his gown and his tabs or whatever he used to hmm. lecture in. We went into the inner vestry, which of course we know isn't there, but it's a little cubby hole. And he sat me down, and as soon as he started talking to me, he realised, of course, I hadn't a clue what I was talking about. He said to me, uh, what are you trusting in for your salvation? What, when you get to the gates of heaven, this was an interview, what are you going to say? And somehow, somehow I said to him, I'm trusting in Jesus. <laughs> now, how I produced that, I don't know. <laughs> untaught but I said the right thing so he said good Um, I think you you better join the lunch time there was one on a Friday lunch hour what we call them nursery classes for new babies nursery classes we we had nursery classes for babies and I was a baby Christian he knew I was I didn't of course but he did and he put me into the Friday lunchtime Bible study which I went from my office which was run by Richard Bowdler who in those days was a chaplain to the stores right so for half an hour, that's what I used to do on my Gosh. my Friday lunchtime, until I actually found myself leading it, because Richard went and I, mm. I was asked to take it over by John. No, by Richard, I think. Who's yeah? But I, mean, I knew nothing. I, I didn't know how I, they let me do this. I mean, you're obviously was, very convincing. <laughs> So I asked for an interview to see John. I said, could I come and talk to you? Because I think perhaps I, the Lord is calling me into some kind of service. Perhaps I ought to be a missionary or something. Mm. And I really went to ask where I ought to go to Bible college. Mm. I didn't want to go, mind you. I, was, I didn't want to. But I just thought that's what you have to do. Yeah. So I said, you know, should I go? He said, well, no, I think, really, I think perhaps you ought to come and be my secretary. Just like that, out of the blue. And you didn't take it seriously? No, of course I didn't. <laughs> I said, I think about it or something. No, I didn't. I said, oh, thank you. I think that was the end of the interview. And I went back to the office. And until about three, two or three days later, I had this phone call in my office. Um, and it was John Stott. I said, oh, my sang. I don't know what I did. I said, oh, yes. And all he said to me, he said, Francis, have you thought about it? 
And this is when I said, well, thought about what? <laughs> he said, have you thought about coming to be my secretary? I said, oh, no, I didn't know you were serious. Oh, well, says John, you better come and see me again. <laughs> and the first time, I think the first time I was being allowed for a quarter of an hour, I don't know how long this time was, I can't remember now. Wow. But the outcome of that was that he said, would I come? And I didn't know there was a vacancy there. I mean, I had no idea. But your job was church secretary to me. I was appointed as, I was appointed as church secretary, which yeah. in fact meant I was his secretary, because there was nobody else. There were only two of us on the admin staff. Oh, really? It was myself. And he had um, a... There was a bursar, John Dugan. Okay. So there weren't curates then? Oh, there were curates, mm-hmm. but there were only lay people. Right. There was a bursar mm-hmm. um, who's added was a kind of assistant to John mm-hmm. uh, and myself, and we had a, a, lay, a church army woman, mm-hmm. worker. And then we had a, a, a lady, a parish worker. Mm-hmm. But that was all. And the rest were, there were three or four curates. Who lived in the stottery. Well, they did. Yes. It, it was full of these men. Yeah. And I, but I had an office in the drawing room. I sat in a corner. On cor- the first floor? On the first floor. I sat in a corner of the drawing room, this big drawing room, mm. with lots of sofas and everything. And just, it was Arnold Stott's desk I had to sit at, which was totally inappropriate. Um, and an awful old manual typewriter. Um, and there I sat. And John was insistent that I should not, should I not meet the previous secretary, who had apparently been rather a, a failure. And <laughs> so I, he kept you apart? Yes, he wouldn't let me, he wouldn't <laughs> let me have any overlap. I had to start the nude. <laughs> I gather My now, boggles about that. He had, well, he'd had one or two disasters, I think. Right. Um, well, you clearly weren't a disaster, well, because 50 plus years... You... <laughs> <laughs> I was so frightened, so scared, I was totally out of my... Yes. So what were you having to do to go with? You were typing up some of his... I started by typing up all his quotations onto yeah. cards. Yeah. I started on April the 9th, 1956, but John wasn't there. John, of course, was down at the Hookses. It was after Easter, and he, and he was having his post-Easter holiday or whatever so he, it was. He wasn't... He, he recently wasn't, he bought the Hookses then, had he? Um, yes, fairly recent. Yeah. Oh, yes, it was quite primitive. Yeah. Yes. It was very primitive then, but I wasn't there. He he was there because that's what he'd already chosen to do. The fact that I had, I was so did you just sit there for the first so day? So I sat there alone in the care of John Collins, oh, yes. dear John. He was the senior curate, right. and he of course all the curates. The rectory was full of John and about three curates. Mm. So it was a male household with a cook and a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And the housekeeper had the room above me, and the cook was in the room underneath, which was, has recently, was recently in my office. Mm. And I was there, sitting alone in the corner of the drawing room, at Sir Arnold Stott's desk, wondering what on earth I was to do. But most of the time, I was reading my Bible, because I right. had nothing else to do. And John, when he came back, the great thing was, whenever he walked upstairs to have, see how I was getting on, was that I wasn't to be, to be found reading my Bible. So I had to be kept busy doing anything <laughs> other than having time to read. He wasn't having that. He wasn't having <laughs> Our conversation then turned to the specifics of her work, in particular typing up all those books. So I asked if doing that work was a bit like having a university education in itself. Well, you'd think so, but I think when you're typing somebody's book, you're so busy concentrating on mm. actually getting it right mm. and making sure you're not making mistakes in what you're typing that you don't take in what you're... I never took in what I right. was typing. 
It was only afterwards that I, that I read the script, mm. I realised what I'd typed. Mm. But you don't, yes, I don't personally mm. find I take it in when I'm typing it. Mm-hmm. Not unless it must be something very remarkable. Mm. Um, or that I'm surprised, you know, doesn't seem to make sense, then I'd notice that. Did you enjoy doing that, though? Oh, yes. Mm. But I, it's amazing to me that at the BBC, I was working for a talks producer in the overseas service, and we did produce an awful lot of talks for the West African service. And I had got very used to typing an awful lot of manuscripts mm. through working at the BBC and having to type really fast because the, in the BBC you were always up against a deadline mm. and you couldn't miss your deadline because it, it doesn't go on air. It has to go on air and you have to have it ready mm. for the recording in the studio. It was all pre-recorded in the overseas. So I got used to doing an awful lot of typing. So providentially that was quite a good training. Well, it, it was a good training. Yeah. It was a good training. The mind boggles about how Uncle John managed to juggle all these different things, you know, with... Obviously, he handed on some of the All Souls work by the 70s, but was travelling, was speaking, was writing. I mean, were you having to... Were you the glue that held it all together somehow? I don't think so. I played my part. I mean, there are certain things one simply had to be. One had to be efficient. Yeah. And you had to do what you were asked to do. And you had to... Um, Did you find it difficult to keep up with them? Well, no, because I worked overtime. Mm. (laughs) You know, he was he worked all hours of the day, Mm. and the only way to keep up, you you know, to keep going or to be to enjoy your work was to do the same. Was that difficult? I didn't find it difficult because I enjoyed it. Mm. My mother, who used to observe this and see how tired I got, resented it Mm. um, because she thought he worked me too hard. But then I said, but if I hadn't, I mean, I could have left. Mm. Couldn't I, if you didn't want to, if you didn't like doing it. Mm. But I, I felt so part of what he was doing, and I could see the blessing of his ministry mm. all along, and what it meant to other people, that you were just glad to be part of it. Mm. He was great to work for, mm. very appreciative. I mean, he worked so hard, but he appreciated what one did. He was always grateful. Mm. Calling you omnicompetent and well, the source of all knowledge. Well... You, you had to be. So you were basically like Uncle John's Google. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I then I did get an assistant after a while. They realised it was more than like one person could right. do. And then I had an assistant secretary, and they were great. I mean, did you have a sense from working in Weymouth Street, just, you know, what people in the last few years have said about him and how he had this profound effect on global Christianity. I mean, did you even have a sense of that in your office? I think what I've often felt is that he was appreciated very much more by people overseas Mm. to whom he went and and who met him overseas. They seemed to appreciate much more what he did than the people in this country. Mm. He got much more criticism over here. He got a lot of criticism here. Did, how did that affect him? Um, the criticism here was that he was doing too much, trying to do too much. I think people would try and stop him. And in fact, I suppose I sometimes did, and yet I always had to stop myself, trying to stop him doing so much. Is this because he would have a suddenly see a need and have a new idea and think, OK, I can do something about this? Let's... Well, the thing was, he was always having new ideas of what to, what to develop, and would always start it off. But as soon as it got going, he'd hand it on, because he would have to. I mean, he couldn't yeah. keep it all. And then people began begin to feel whether well, he's lumped it now on me. Right. So I think, what else can you do mm. if you're pioneering? You have to depend on other people, and they don't, they don't always come up to scratch or up to the same standard. Mm. But, I mean, just in terms of some of the controversies, like, um, you know, 
what he actually believed after death about judgment he, and things. He got, I mean, yes. Was he upset by that? I don't think he could. He, no, I don't think he was. I don't think he, ups, he didn't get upset so much. I think he he would just get weary of people not really putting things in context. Mm. Um, so he produced a statement then as mm. to what he really meant by um, eternal death or whatever. Mm. Um, the, he would produce. I mean, when it happened, he would produce something to, to, to show his point of view. But the frustration was when people don't listen or don't yeah. or aren't careful enough. They, they judge people judge, jump to conclusions yeah. so quickly without really knowing the facts and that yeah. that always did irritate him because actually one of the great gifts he had was he always sought to do justice to those he disagreed with well he did and he'd always look round mm. um, look at everything mm. from every angle he he would make sure he was covering it properly yeah. um, it's uh, he, he was he would never give a quick reply if you asked him anything he would always think before he answered, whereas I tend to immediately say what I think. <laughs> you know. And because you're omnicompetent, it's usually right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always right, yes. <laughs> the only reason I could have been possibly the source of all knowledge was he made me. If he ever asked me something, I had to find out. Right. When did you stop calling him rector? <laughs> Wait a minute. I started calling him. I always called him Mr. Stott. Right. That when I was first there, until Michael Bourne came. Um, and Michael, when he arrived, his first thing he did was to go down to the kitchen to talk to the cook. Because everybody until that time in the setup, in the hierarchy, Everyone was known by their sir, Mr. and Mrs. or Miss or whatever. We mm. were all called by there. No one was called by a Christian name. Michael went down to the kitchen and announced to Margaret, the cook, I am Michael and you are Margaret. And from that day on, we, were, we began to call people by Christian names. And we dared even to call the wardens by their Christian names. Gosh. We were allowed to. But I said, what did I say? I can't call him. I can't, I can't call. No, yeah, I'd always called him rector. That's right. It was easy. We didn't have to bother with Christian names. Yeah. With him, rector. I said, I can't, I can't now call him Rector Emeritus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't. But I, I, can't. <laughs> I can't call him Rector now because I've got him vicar. And I think that's when I, I was told I could call him John. I suppose he said I could. But it, it, it had always been Rector, you yes. see. So I had to say, it had to be something else, and it couldn't be, a, it was too much of a mouthful. Um, it would have to be either Rector, Mr. Stott, I suppose, or Dr. Stott by then, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And I was allowed. But the formality, he'd always maintained it because of all the, the women in the church. These women. They were falling at his feet. They were, they were always after him. <laughs> so were you a gatekeeper then? Yes. Well, no. I mean, yeah. But I didn't know. I, I prayed to the Lord before I started. I said, Lord, you have to keep, please keep us apart. I mean, I never thought that he would be attracted by me, but I knew that I could be attracted by him. Mm. So, Lord, you must keep us apart. And I trusted God to keep us apart as he kept Sarah apart from Pharaoh or whatever he did. Right. You know, I thought, well, God can keep people in this sort of situation. Mm. Um, and I'm going to trust you to do that. Otherwise, I, I couldn't do it. Because it strikes strike me... Um, I mean, I've only been around for the last eight years or so, and I um, encountered you and John a few mm. times before that. But 
that basically you were like very close siblings. Well, we had a great relationship. Yeah. It was wonderful. Here am I, a single person, but if I have a, this lovely man mm. alongside, as it were, and mm. we can share everything with, what more do I want? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew you could say there's more you could want, but it was very fulfilling yeah. to be able to be in that position with him. And he wasn't afraid of me. I don't think he was afraid of me. He may have thought. He can't have been. What? After all that time. To be able to live in a relation, a close relationship with a single man, be single yourself for so long, mm. is quite unusual, mm. isn't it? I mean, mm. that was the answer to prayer. God mm. did. Do you think there was a point when you realised this is, this is friendship rather than professional? Or did you never think about it like that? He was my boss. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I always admired him because he, he was Christ-like and he preached so well. I had this tremendous admiration for him always, but a certain awe, I suppose, because he was so much higher up than I was, more spiritual. People idolised him, of course, mm. but I didn't idolise him. No. I just, well, you knew him. I so knew him. You were but not I, going to idolise him. I was allowed know. to know him, and he let me know him as he was, mm. and he was so human, mm. and he would apologise. Mm. People thought he never apologised, but he, I mean, he could be very abrupt, yeah. and people, yeah. But I can remember him coming up to my office from down below. He was underneath, and I yeah. was up in the drawing, coming up one day, putting his hand, his head round the door, and saying, was the, sun, was the sun now shining again? Because he knew he'd been unkind. Yeah, I mean, sometimes he didn't. I don't think he was aware of it. But, I mean, I think something you said at the memorial, but also I've heard you talk about, was the fact that here was someone that the perception one had of him, and the large part... Mm-hmm. Of a, of a man living a simple life but with determination and yeah. that fitted the reality. It there did, there, there wasn't a distinction between no, the, there was no the dichotomy. No. And and you know you worked with him for fifty plus years, so you would have well, seen the the gaps. I think because I, mean, I could see the authenticity. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you, you can um, accept any shortcomings or failures that that come along the way because they come to us all. He was great to work for. Couldn't have been better. Did you go on many of the trips? Overseas, I only went once. I went to Koei, the consultation on world evangelization in Thailand. Right. And that I did travel with him. Um, and I enjoyed that. But again, of course, I was very busy when I got there. Mm. There was a lot to do. But the reason I didn't go otherwise, he didn't take me because he didn't need me. We had it in Thailand. At least it was fun because we had a bit of a break, a holiday up in the, one of the national parks. Bird watching. Bird watching, of course. That was a highlight. So were you into birds? Oh, yes. Before you knew John? Well, my father had always taken me out. Right, okay. But my father always had the binoculars. Right. So, <laughs> so we had, I didn't have my own until I worked with John gave me my first <laughs> He got me a pair of binoculars. Because basically it was pretty much a job requirement, wasn't it, to be into bird watching to work with him? Well, you you would enjoy it much more if you think. <laughs> but I mean, I, I had been used to it with my father, of course, living in the country. Mm. Um, but I wasn't really keen. Um, but as soon as I got to work with him, of course, I became much more interested. I what do you think you most learned from him? Well, what it means to be committed mm. um, to the Lordship of Christ. And, and, and disciplined in that commitment. Well, in every way. Yeah. Um, is he Lord? Mm. Um, yeah. And is Christ your serving? It's not the man. What do you think he learned from you? Obedience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he learned from me. <laughs> uh, what would he learn from you? I don't oh, know. Lots of things. We've got lots of things to learn from you. Like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I suppose I just, I just got on with the job. Mm. Can well, you think of some of the weirdest or, or funniest moments? Things, you know, or, or the strangest requests you'd have to sort of filter before okay. you got... 
I did so many things that weren't in the secretarial line at all. I mean, mm. I, I did all. I furnished the hooks. You know, I, I was. I found you chose my, the curtains. I found my yes. I, did, I made them all. Right. Well, but he he would give his opinion. I mean, he, did he have he, strong he, views about the curtains? Oh yes, about <laughs> the colour. Yeah, oh yes, he liked bright colours. You know, it was all part of the job that I, mm. I looked after his home. Yeah. I was able to look after him, wasn't yeah. I? It was a partnership in ministry, it was, wasn't it, it? Yes, it was. And because ministry... It was much more than a job. Yeah. Um, it was just a shared life. Yeah. I, I mean, was... there were a lot of laughs. Yes, lots of laughs. What sort of things would tickle him? I mean, would... <laughs> you know he had this passion for H.H. Munro. Yes. Yes, Starkey. Starkey. Starkey, Starkey. He... Laughing at the jokes in Saki, and he, I can st- he still he, he would still laugh at some of the jokes. He laughed at he laughed at the same joke for years. It would yes. always be the same one when we got there. He would just collapse. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't put on. He just yeah. would laugh. Yeah. He was very tra- um, traditional. Was not uh, traditional is the right word. He had the same sort of things he enjoyed doing, yes. and he repeated them over and over again. Yes. We always had to have the same, follow the same sort of pattern. Yeah. The evenings out at the Hookses were always for reading, yeah. and the reading was always for sake. Yeah. We seldom thought that we'd read anything else if we did. And that was what the evenings were for. It never occurred to me we might do something else on an <laughs> evening. Well, it may have occurred, but it's never mentioned. No, you know, it, it was tradition. Yeah. You know, you followed the same tradition. Mm. Um, but it was quite a dry wit, wasn't it? I mean, he was always sort of puncturing balloons and things. And oh, yes, yeah. And um, making sure people didn't get ideas about their station too much. <laughs> he was, yeah. He was very kind. Mm. Um, I mean, he was very considerate for us. He used to take well, the three of us. We'd always, we'd go out every everybody's birthday had to be celebrated. Yes, there were that's a tradition. Any any of us had a birthday, we had to celebrate, mm. and the, all, the celebration always would take the same form. We'd always had to go out for a meal together, and mm. then we'd always go to a show, and this had to be done. However busy he was, mm. it was him, you know, we did this. Mm. But not many bosses would be like that, would they? I suppose because he was single. And his ministry was it, his life. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't cut him But apart. it was the only sort of home life, you know, family life he had. Uh, I mean, he had um, siblings and nephews and nieces and things. Well, he did, yes. Um, but he didn't see much of them, really. No. I guess All Souls was his family, really. It was. He regarded All Souls as his family. And so when he moved down to St Barnabas, was that hard for him? The College of St Barnabas is a retirement home for Anglican clergy just in Surrey, outside London, beautiful countryside and a very idyllic place to retire to and be looked after. And that was where John spent his final years after life in his tiny London flat just became impractical and unsustainable. I think when I look back now, I I think it was very hard. I don't know whether we made the right decision to take him so far out of London. But I don't know where else we'd have found a place where he would have some kind of spiritual no. fellowship or... And the care was amazing there, wasn't the it? The care was good, but he was too far from London. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he must have felt terribly isolated. And now, now that I find myself here on my own, I realise how lonely it can be, largely just in a secular situ- mm-hmm. setting. Uh, and there's nobody to share your uh, the same sort of outlook. Um, I think it was hard, very hard for him. He never grumbled. He never grumbled. Yeah. And they and loved him there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved going to visit him. I think the thing that used to strike me most was here was a man whose life had been with words 
in in such an extraordinary way, yeah. both in terms of what he read and, and what he yeah. wrote and spoke, and yet to to lose sight and hearing was just so hard. Yes, yes, yeah. Very poignant. I often wonder now what he was thinking about all that time. He was yeah. there, some Barnabas on his, sitting in that room on his own. Yeah. What was it? I never asked him, mm. but I never thought to ask him what mm. he was thinking on all the time. He was looking forward to going home, I guess. Oh, he was, mm. yeah. But it would have been nice to talk with him about it, mm. and I never did. I was, I suppose, I was always too busy. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I was always amazed that, you know, I'd be going off on a Langham trip, he'd want to know, and he'd remember some of the, the names of the people in that country and said, how's X oh, or Y? Be painful, it's astonishing. Yeah. Mm. He did have a really genuine concern for people and a desire to help or to strengthen them in their faith mm. and encourage. So you typed up, what, 50 books? Yep. Yes. And you were given, was it a master's from Lambeth? I was. That was a... I said, I can't accept this. I haven't done anything for it. <laughs> you've got a master's. You've got to at least take an exam. You, you, well, you've passed the start test. <laughs> I still don't know who, whoever... It wasn't John who put me up for it. Right. And it wasn't Timothy Dundee Smith. I thought it might have been. So I don't know who it was. I don't think Welding would have... Do you I, think, well, I, I'm sure he would. I don't, you totally deserved it. <laughs> I didn't deserve it. So you are, you are a Lambeth MA? I'm a Lambeth MA, believe it or not. I do believe complete, it. Complete fraud. <laughs> I, said, I said I can't. It's just, yeah. So that was well, great, though. It was nice. But the Lord has been so good to me, Mark. Mm. You know, it's all been given me. You don't know how bad I've been. I am. I was. How ungodly... <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, how worldly, how empty. No, empty, I think. Yes. I was wrong. It wasn't the world that was wrong. It was me. Looking I mean, back now, you know, you've been a Christian all these years and yeah. every day is an adventure. What do you think about how the church is now as you see it? What's oh, changed? I, I can't tell because I haven't had much experience of the church outside of all souls. Having spent all my years, missed my years. In the, but in you've, church, but I now, mean, you've had a unique yeah. vantage point from Uncle John's study, if you like, and he's been involved in so many different yeah. things. And you've typed it all up and you've talked with him. My great longing is that the church will really proclaim the word of God. Mm. Uh, that should be preeminent, in, and it's a word they preach and not just their own ideas. Or, mm. um, and to see, I would long, long to see that everywhere in the church. People have such a low attitude towards God. Little expectation, anyway. Little ex- yes, and, and no awareness of the goodness and the greatness of the glory of God and what he's given us. God is not in all their thoughts, let's say, and if that's what you feel in the world today. You look around and how many people here, down here, give God a thought. Maybe one's judging it unfairly. Perhaps the people do think of God more and what it means to live in his world, and it's not our world. Mm. But the word brings us back again and It again. does, but well, that's why I'd say important yeah. to read. Yeah. And that's, I think, has to be one of John's great legacies, isn't it? That through things like Langham Partnership and yeah. books and the sermons, you know, they're on the And line. the authority of scripture, I mean, it has come back, hasn't it? Well, I don't know, but it, he did stand so much for that, didn't he? Well, is there a, a sort of final summing up thought as you look back on 
well, not just 57 years today, 50, yeah, 57 years today, but also just mm-hmm. you look back on a life, you say gratitude is the main well, thing. Well, I think the only thing I can say is how thankful I am yeah. to being given the opportunity, the opportunity that I've had and to experience the blessings that I've known and mm-hmm. seen and the reality of God in, in a human life makes God relevant and real and true. Mm-hmm. Just so thankful. Well, we're very thankful for you, Francis. Oh, not and, for me. Well, you are much but, loved at all sorts. Thank, well, thank God for John. I don't want mm. him to be forgotten. No. But what he stood for, yeah. that's what pleases me so much. I'd love to see people, this generation, knowing about, not so much about John himself, but about what he stood for mm. uh, in his ministry and the riches of what he's written. And we're blessed by his... Okay, so if there was one book, if there's someone listening to this who's mm-hmm. never read any of Uncle John's books, which one book oh. would you tell them to start with? Oh, there's so many. The Incomparable Christ, mm-hmm. with his focus on Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they all focus on him, really, but mm. that's the one I can think of. Which was his favourite, do you know? Was it The Cross of Christ? Uh, he would say The Cross of Christ. Well, Francis, uh, we must wrap things up there. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Well, thanks for coming. I want now to give a few more details of that biography of Francis that I mentioned earlier. It's called John Stott's Right Hand, The Untold Story of Francis Whitehead by Julia Cameron. And uh, Julia spent quite a bit of time talking with Francis and talking with friends of hers. And uh, this has just been updated in just the last few months. I think it's just come out in this form uh, in 2021. I do recommend it. It's a fascinating read. You'll find out much more about the various stages of her life. It's available at all the usual places or directly from the little publishing house that Julia herself has set up called Dictum. We'll put details on the show notes on the website. Now, if you want to listen to the whole of that conversation, we've obviously just uh, truncated it a little bit to fit with uh, the uh, format of this podcast, uh, then you can. Um, You can either search for Quarentia Conversations uh, using my name, if you like, in all the usual podcast hosts like uh, Google Play and Apple and all the rest. Or you can go through the link that we're going to put on the show notes to my blog, and you'll find links there. My blog is markmenel.com. M-A-R-K-M-E-Y-N-E-L-L, all one word, dot net. But that is all we have for this episode. As we've celebrated Uncle John's centenary this week, we will resume normal service in our next episode, which will be available in the next week or two. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But before that time, we wish you well and look forward to being together again. Goodbye. Goodbye.